Hello and welcome to this episode of the Ask Me podcast. I'm Dan Smith, Sustainability and Construction Manager for Mitsubishi Electric. I'm joined today by my fellow colleagues Martin, Chris and Mark. Before I introduce those, I want to set the scene and ask for a favour. This episode is going to focus on the concept of a stranded asset. However, over the next coming episodes, we're going to be talking about all things sustainability and specifically in context of the built environment. With not any fellow peers, but industry experts across the industry. If that, if that sounds of interest to you, please do subscribe, follow, like, comment and share. Now, without further ado, I'd like to introduce my colleague, Mark. Welcome. Hi, Mark. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks, Dan. How are you? Yeah, very well, thank you. If you can just give me a bit of a journey as to where you got to today with your career at Mitsubishi Electric. Sure. Um, so my name is Mark Grayston. Um, I've been with Mitsubishi Electric for about 16 years now, um, primarily in, in roles around product management and product marketing, currently heading up the, the commercial side of that. So we're, we're looking at introducing new products into the market, understanding the needs of the market and working with our stakeholders to develop products. So yeah, really excited to talk about this topic today. Awesome. Thanks, Mark. Martin, same question for you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, Martin Fahi, I'm the Head of Sustainability for Mitsubishi Electric UK and Ireland. Um, 18 years into my journey now with Mitsubishi Electric and I suppose more importantly for the discussion today, probably 13 years or so dedicated almost exclusively on the sustainability journey that we've been on. So uh, looking forward to the chat. And last but not least, Mr Newman. Uh, yeah, thanks, Dan. Uh, thanks again for inviting me along. Um, yeah, my name's Chris Newman. I'm our Zero Carbon Design Manager. Uh, I've worked at Mitsubishi Electric for well, nearly 20 years now. Makes me sound really old. Um, but uh, yeah, I've done most jobs at the business, to be honest. Everything from um, pre-sales, technical design, through to training, um, sales management. So over the journey, over the years, um, I've managed to get a handle on most parts of the business and obviously my job at the moment is to try and bring all of that together uh, and try and help our clients with uh, designs to, to try and achieve net zero and try and get towards uh, a more efficient building design. Awesome, thanks Jen. So between us we've got 50 odd years experience. Hopefully uh, we know what we're talking about but in the context of sustainability there's a lot of noise, there's a lot of guidance, legislation, it's a hot topic in the industry. Who wants to be first in sort of setting the scene with where we're at with the whole sustainability agenda as a whole? Martin, I'm sort of looking in your direction. Yeah, no problem. I can take that one. Um, well, yeah, I, it's it's been a journey, and a, a journey is is the way I'm, uh, and we are fond of discussing it really because, uh, you know, we ultimately I think we all know where we where we want to be as an industry, but it's not just an industry. It's it's the, it's the planet. It's all of us as citizens and then all of us as companies operating within that. So the ultimate goal is for us to operate in a net zero way by mid-century latest, so by 2050, sooner if at all possible. So um, how we're going to get there um, is, is the big um, talking point at the moment. I mean, we're a company doing our manufacturing bit um, of the size that we are. But this is going to be delivered, which I firmly believe it will be delivered, by companies of every size uh, in this in the supply chains, big, small, and regardless of what they're doing. And key is going to be collaboration in this because none of us have got all the answers. So we need to um, do this together. 
So probably what would be useful is just to define net zero. Would that yeah, be helpful? Yeah, that's going to be my next question, actually. Yeah, imagine okay, our, that's great. Our listeners are probably saying, well, what is net zero? I, I hear it's a buzzword. I hear the mm. word carbon neutral. I hear mm. net zero in operation. Yeah. There's so many different words around being net zero. Yeah. Um, let, let's start by saying, defining yeah. in our own words, what is net zero? Yeah. Well, I mean, in our words, but also in the words of you know, um, bodies more esteemed than I, you know, like the Committee on Climate Change who set, who set this out and say where we need to be. So net zero means um, reducing our uh, impacts today from the whole suite of um, everything that we do has an environmental impact. Mm -hmm. It generates emissions, it uses resources. So we need to move from the position where we are today of all that mixed bag of emissions uh, not least of which all the emissions that are generated in buildings, whatever that building's used for, live in, work in, play in, you know, generates a huge amount of um, uh, daily emissions. Now, we may need to move from that point by mid-century at the absolute latest to a point whereby the emissions that we're generating, we have the ability to reabsorb mm -hmm. somehow in an effective um, way. We can't possibly do that today with the amount of emissions that we're putting into the system. It's overwhelming. So we need to go on a journey of efficiency as well as on a journey of increased use of renewable energy and technologies, and which we may Mark? get onto. The, the big problem at the moment, I think, is that they say you can't reduce what you don't measure because you don't know what you're producing in the first place. And right now, we know where we need to get to, but most people that I talk to, they don't really know what they're currently using as energy, or they don't know what uh, the amount of carbon that's being associated with mm. the energy that they're using. Everybody wants to reduce, of course, reduction's great, but you know, what does good look like? What does, yeah. What's the difference between, you know, as you said, using energy because we need to, we can't do anything without using energy, <coughs> what's the right amount of energy to use? Mm. I think this is a big part of the problem, is trying to understand where we are today in the first place. Before. Yeah, yeah, absolutely right, Chris. Yeah, because, you know, we can't... And I always say that's um, item number one, if anyone ever presses us as to what do you got to do first. And it sounds counterintuitive for a manufacturer of technologies that can, you know, offset and deliver, you know, any any load that you've got in, in essence. But we have long said, and we'll continue to say, because it's the right thing to do, you have to reduce your need to consume energy in the first place. That's first and foremost. The cleanest, cheapest unit of electricity is the one you don't use. So you should strive to reduce that right down as much as you possibly can. Uh, and then and making that visible on that journey, absolutely imperative, because you can do nothing without it. We've all got a, a smart meter at home, pretty much mm -hmm. all of us. A smart meter in no way, shape or form. Um, stops you from using energy it doesn't by itself it doesn't save energy or, or reduce the energy you consume in your house but it makes you aware of it mm. and then once you're aware of it that drives your behavior mm. to try and realize that when you turn the kettle on or when you turn the light on or when you turn the heat on you can see the impact there and then so i think from a commercial point of view we've got to get closer to that because in a building and things just get lost don't they you know Absolutely. it's a big building yeah. lots of little things happening you know um escalators on when no one's on it or, or whatever it is they're all contributing aren't they towards... yeah we've all seen it haven't we lights in car parks in the middle of the day and and things like that that's that's to your point of trying to make that sort of thing visible and 
you know, smart meters move your energy at home from under your stairs to somewhere that's visible for you, hopefully. I always used to use the analogy of filling your car up as well at the petrol station. You go, it's in neon outside how much the petrol is, and you feel it. You see that number going round and round and round as you've got the pump in. You know, so you're directly connected to that energy use, and that's, I mean, never any more important than it is today, of course. But uh, yeah, so those are two examples of most definitely. Visibility, visibility is vital. So it comes down to one being visible, and and two, the data. We need to be rich in data, but also know the direction that we're moving in with regards to that data. And I think that probably segues quite nicely onto the topic of, of a stranded asset because it's a visible asset mm. with, with a potential grading, whether it be A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Um, gents, just for our listeners then, a stranded asset, define what a stranded asset is, what does it mean, what does that look like, what's going on in the industry, why is it a hot topic right now? From our point of view, when we look at the built environment, because we're all concentrated on the commercial world predominantly uh, around this table. I know obviously we've got a big presence in the uh, in the domestic arena as well, but from a commercial point of view, if you look at a, a commercial building, that commercial building has a value and it has a function, it has a purpose. Um, otherwise it wouldn't exist, hopefully. So the question about stranded assets is when does that building not become um, a useful asset? When does it not become financially viable? When does it not become... Um, functional for, for its use that it's intended for and if you do nothing from the day that you create that building and that building remains static the rest of the world as Martin said before is marching on towards net zero in 2050 so we know that between now and then a significant amount of things need to change but that from that building's point of view the day that the doors open not a lot changes with it and it, therefore it doesn't keep up with the constant reductions in energy consumption that we need to achieve. It's not keeping up with the, uh, the change. We've been talking um, a lot about the way that people use offices differently, the way people use buildings differently. So I think there's a, you could argue there's a lot of different definitions for stranded. Mm-hmm. Stranded from a legislative point of view, it doesn't meet the up-to-date legislation. Stranded from a, a financial point of view, as in it's not, a building that's generating the income that it should do, or it's not generating the lettable value that it should do, or, or stranded because it doesn't perform the function that it now needs to because things are changing. So you, you, you mentioned the, the, the current legislation. Just give our listeners a bit of context around exactly what that is. I know there's a benchmark and there's a target that landlords, developers have to reach by 2030, is that right? Well, every, every commercial building has to have an energy performance certificate. Um, public buildings have got a display energy certificate, but commercial buildings have got a, an energy performance certificate. And that, as you said before, Dan, is rated you know, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, to try and demonstrate what the efficiency of that building is. Mm-hmm. As it stands at the moment, there is legislation forcing a minimum energy efficiency for buildings. And, and as time moves on, the government are trying to raise that bar uh, and force building owners and building landlords to get their buildings higher and higher up that scale. So at the moment, we're looking at a minimum EPCB rating for a commercial building by the year 2030. That's the target. So obviously, um, any building owner at the moment, first of all, they've got to get an EPC for their building. It's a requirement by law. 
uh, an EPC typically lasts for 10 years. Um, an awful lot can change in 10 years from when you've got that EPC done. Uh, and as I say, you've got to get to an EPCB by 2030. So um, they need to look at what the building currently is. And if it's not a B-rated building, then they're going to need to do things to that building to get it to a B-rated building by 2030. Yeah, um, just to add to your comprehensive list of what, um, you know, what makes something stranded, I suppose, in that regard, when I... Uh, talk, when I talked about net zero and what net zero is, you know, and I talked about mid-century, that's the latest. That's the backstop point. That's worst case. Isn't that's it? worst case. Absolutely. Many local authorities, many individual companies, many big businesses are setting aspirations and targets to move a lot quicker than that. So I think I'd add add into that that as I say, great list that you create, um, reeled off there, but also you know an an, an image and a reality point, which is this building in this portfolio, whether it's one I happen to own and I'm in today, or one that I'm thinking about in the future, how does that fit with what I've told the world I'm going to do with regards to net zero? The NHS, for example, have stated that if it's uh, emissions that are in their direct control, they want those to be net zero by 2040. You know, it, it an amazing thing to aspire to, but, you know, they've given themselves a big, big task uh, to do that. 2050 is often difficult enough. But think of their estate and all of those buildings. They will need to look at them now and understand, are these buildings that I can keep? Are these buildings that I need to divest myself of? Or do I need to invest in them? It's an interesting um, thing, because I don't know if you were going to go on to this or not, Dan. But there is obviously a subtle difference between carbon neutral and net zero. Mm-hmm. And there is a lot of businesses at the moment um, that want to get to carbon neutrality, they, they don't want to be adding to the problem, which is a very honourable thing to, to want to do, and to make sure that as a business they're not emitting carbon into the atmosphere that's contributing to the problem that we've got with climate change. But you could approach that by just carrying on as you are, by consuming the same amount of energy that you currently consume, uh, emitting the same amount of carbon that you currently can, you know, you currently emit, and then simply purchasing some carbon offsets. Mm. We can plant some trees or we can do some carbon sequestration in, in some way to balance out the carbon that we've uh, that we've emitted. I think the problem with that is that today, from some of the, the stats I've seen, that's actually a relatively low cost option. Um, to not really change too much, keep emitting what you're emitting, and then simply purchase some offsets to balance your you, you know balance your way out of it. The problem that we're gonna have is as time goes on and more and more people buy those balance, Absolutely, those offsets, yeah. the cost of them is going to go up and up and up. Mm-hmm. I suppose the real million-dollar question is at what point does it become more cost-effective to produce less carbon mm. than it does to produce the same amount of carbon and pay to offset it? Mm. In my mind, that's when I think you get massive seed change because at that point, it makes much more financial sense to simply emit less carbon in the first place than it yeah. does to offset it. I don't know what you guys think about that. I think I think offsetting is a is a whole other episode here. A little shameless plug there. So watch this space for future episodes. But um, I'd love to get in some industry experts within this off offsetting space. Uh, but you make a, a really valid point there, Chris. But I, I did want to speak about the current building stock, Martin, that you mentioned, and and I think the figure is eighty percent of the current building yeah. stock has been built today. 
So Mark, just, just to pull you in from, from that perspective, if we know that the 80% of the current building stock is going to ex exist, and I think there's something like 24.5 million square foot of space that's due to be out of, out of lease in the next sort of three to four years, these potential buildings are going to be stranded assets. What are we doing from a sort of product development space? What's your thought in terms of strategy moving in this direction? What can we deliver as a manufacturer to help um, negate this problem? That's a really good question. Um, I suppose it's it's about um, trying to maximise and understand the, the sort of needs of the, the building itself and the buildings around it um, and, and, and looking at the sorts of technologies that can help us achieve that. So <clears throat> whether that be through recovery of energy within a building, recovery of energy between buildings, recovery of the air that you're putting into mm -hmm. the building to ventilate and pull out of that space. Mm -hmm. Um, a lot of those technologies already exist. Um, I suppose what we're what we're looking at, what we're trying to do, is is um, balance um, the, the different challenges that we have around reducing the carbon and reducing, you know, improving the efficiency of the equipment, with ensuring it's still uh, providing comfort in that space. Whether it be, as Martin said, work, rest, and play, like that sort of that, that wording that, that nicely pulls it all together. Um, balancing other things like. You know the occupancy and the changing of use of these types of spaces and how we look at them all. So, the, I suppose the, the technology is is refining a lot of the types of technologies that we're currently using, looking at how we can um, work with those products and utilize them better together. And that's a lot of the work that like Chris does at the moment in the in the business. Um, and you know focusing on things that that we do have in our control. So um, when we're looking at a carbon of a product. Um, Historically, we're looking at the, the efficiency and the operational carbon. We're now looking to look, look a lot more at embodied carbon and the mm -hmm. impact of that and how that affects our product design. Perfect. Go ahead, Martin. Gonna... Yeah, and, and uh, Chris mentioned about visibility and how we can't do it. You know, we need a lot more visibility on what's actually happening when we're using the. What have we, what have we got in that regard, and where where do you see that going? Yeah, definitely. So the the the. the I suppose, and to pick up something, something you said before, Martin, you know, the most efficient energy use is, is to not use that energy. Mm. Um, and, you know, we're, we're very much focusing on product development that's up, that are more efficient, are more effective at doing their job. But ultimately, if we're not controlling them together properly, that's, that's kind of, you know, your number one piece. And there's technologies and, and solutions available around that. But you're right that Chris mentioned this before as well about you, you, if, you, if you don't measure it, you don't know kind of where you're at. So that the point of being able to capture the data, um, capture that data in a way that the it, you put it in front of the right people mm. to, to make a, an understanding of that data, and then you do something with that data. So whether it's uh, that's a, a system that does something with that, an algorithm um, based on, on, uh, on learning about the building, about the systems, or in, in the more rudimentary form in front of a person that can make those decisions. That's the kind of really important thing that we need to move forward with. Um, and using cloud as a technology base to, to, to do that. So getting all of the systems, getting all of the data points onto the internet so we can, we can start capturing that data and start making decisions from it. That's, that's the kind of direction we're heading in. See, Mark's responsible for, for product and to make sure that we've got the right products in, in the market. But I think uh, a big part of that is not to stop looking for a product to solve the problems. It's about how you apply that product and how you use that product in the mm -hmm. building. And that feeds into what you said before about capturing the data, how, how it operates, um, how to optimize it. And, and we kind of do, I think, 
in the UK in general, we sort of do a bit of a fit and forget with things. You know, we install it, we design it, we put it into a building and we turn it on and then we kind of walk away from it. I think there's got to be a real a realisation that every building is different. Um, and it, it might be the same box or the same equipment that you're putting into different buildings, but they need to be dialed in differently. They need to be optimised. Um, you know, they need to be better explained to the occupants of the building how to get the maximum from that piece of equipment. And I think, I say, the application of what we do um, in the next, well, we've got 27 and a bit years to solve this problem. I'm personally not convinced that we're going to get some kind of a magical product that's just going to come along and solve all these problems. Oh, no, no, no. You know, the no, laws no. of physics aren't going to change too dramatically between now no. and 2050. And the Committee on Climate Change know that as well. That's why they've, you know, plotted out that, you know, electrification is the key. If it can be electrified, you know, do so. So stop burning something, use a heat pump, for example. Um, there's discussion around hydrogen. That'll have its place in in certain parts of industry, aviation and shipping, in, in my opinion, and opinion of others. But yeah, it's, it, you're absolutely right. You know, our, our role in this, I, I always see, is, is being, you know, we've got to innovate and invest and keep bringing those, you know, improvements. Like incremental improvements. In, yeah, I mean, they're very much incremental, but you know, there's equally as well, there's the step forwards that, that, that come along, you know, very rarely. You know, I think two pipe VRF was a step forward at the time, and now two pipe hybrid VRF is another step forward in my time, and I've been doing it a long while, like you have, Chris. You know, those sort of, those aren't just baby steps; those are, you know, real shifts in 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 how you can apply um, what a building needs. Sometimes cooling, heating, ventilation, but in a lower impact way all round, you know, whether it be embodied, operational, you know, lifetime ownership, you know, that, that's why I say that's, you know, that's a stride forward, not just a little step forward. I think we're very guilty in the industry. We need to do more of the do, a little less conversation, a little more action. Um, you only have to look at the sustainability title on, on LinkedIn and you see the hundreds and thousands of people now with that title. And it makes you think, you know, this this twenty yeah, I'm laughing at you, Mark. This this twenty seven year goal, and Chris saying, you know, you, you're not too confident that we're going to hit all the required targets. We need to start. Well, we need to start doing the do right. Something to chip in there. You are quite right. I mean, twenty seven years. You know that that'll, you know, probably see me out of the industry. I mean, you're, you're a younger man than me, Dan, but yeah, so you'll be around. But, um, you know, actually, you know, that's that's for net zero, and that's the absolute latest. Bear in mind. You, we need to be halfway to that mm -hmm. by 2030. Yeah, it's cumulative, isn't it? Yeah. Emissions are cumulative. So that, that, that's a whole lot. That's a, you know, that's different. When you think of that, that's seven years down the road. That's not 27 years down the road. An interesting, um, I don't know if you'd call it a fact, but someone said to me, you know, we have to decarbonise by 50% by, by 2030, and yet we haven't really got a plan in place for that. But two years later, 2032, the Brisbane Olympics has already been planned. A little Olympics, I'm going to say little Olympics in context, in comparison two years earlier, we need to decolonise 50% of, of Europe to hit this target. And you think, wow, well, you know, better get busy. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, we'll have to get a fact checker for this 
yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I think also as well, just to uh, remind me, I think you can't coin that phrase "work, rest, and play." I think somebody used that. Yeah, I don't think I actually said it quite like the way that. Uh, yeah. I said I think live, work, and play. Yeah, okay. I think. <laughs> so I think it's fair to say we're a specification-led business. Fair to say, fair comment. Yeah. So a lot of our customers are, are big consultant practices, and um, you say they're they're responsible for creating the design of of new buildings. So if they're aiming to be an EPC rating of A to avoid being a stranded asset, what does that look like from a perspective of a consultant whilst it's in design? And then what does that look like from a landlord's perspective when it's in operation? So I'm, I might get on my little soapbox a little bit here about this, because this is something I, um, I'm quite passionate about. A lot of the props, certainly from a new construction building point of view, obviously we've got building regulations um, we've got to design buildings to, to achieve the minimum requirements for building regulations. But a lot of the tools that we use, and a lot of the way that we model a building in design, is designed to comply. It's not designed to perform, or it's not necessarily designed to perform. They are two slightly different things. Um, when, you, when you're trying to make sure a building does everything that it has to do in order to get through building regulations, to get through planning regulations, uh, to get through you know, whatever the requirements the client has asked for, for example, the employer's requirements. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's then been looked at in terms of how that building will actually perform. And this is where we end up with, um, in some regards, we end up with a performance gap between how the building was modelled originally from a compliance point of view and how the building is actually being operated and used from a you know, post-occupancy point of view. Mm-hmm. If you look at the latest SIBSI guidelines, the TM54 guidelines, which talk about um, energy modelling in buildings, the the gap between the predicted energy use of a building and the actual energy use of a building is huge. And part of the problem that we've got going full circle uh, to, to the discussion is about measuring. So if your performance measurement is an EPC, which might be an EPC A, as you said in that example, Dan, that... Uh, that modelling was done before the building was occupied. So the building's an A-rated building. But now the building is occupied, it might not be performing like an A-rated building at all. The way that people are are operating the building, the way the systems are being used, the way the occupancy might not be as per the model. Um, You know, entire... We have a a thing in the UK we do a lot of with Cat A and Cat B fit-outs, where a building is designed, and then when an occupant comes in, they completely change the layout, they completely change... To make that building fit for their purpose that has some quite significant energy implications as well so i think if you could bridge the performance gap between model and design we'd be a long way towards where we need to be and that's where um, schemes like neighbors um, are becoming really important because neighbors is a client's way of making sure that the building performs much closer in reality to the way that it was designed and obviously if we can get the gap between the actual energy consumption and the modeled energy consumption to be as small as possible so that ideally they're the same or very close to being the same then we'll actually know what good looks like and we'll actually know at design stage that this will be a good building whereas at the moment you almost have to hand the building over and walk away and then come back at a later date before you realize whether it's been a good building or not Mm. There's a thing as well, I suppose, to add to that and, and to follow on from one of your points earlier, Chris, around 
<clears throat> as you say, you've got to design it right, you've got to operate it right. And how much of this is to do with the change in culture and mindset of the occupiers of that space and then needing to, you know, think differently about the way that what comfort feels like, what, you know, is it okay to do this, is it okay to do that? So that's, I suppose, to, to add into the, you know, the sort of the technological, the solutions, um, mm. the legislative change, there's also that kind of the people aspect of it, isn't there? There is, yeah. That, that I, think I, I think interesting discussion, which, you know, it's being had in uh, places, but it, I think it's going to be wider spread, is, you know, what does comfort look like inside a building and what is a, you know, a, 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 an internal environment that is conducive to what you want to do in that building, a gym, an office or whatever, you know, We've got an ever decreasing um, budget, if you like, for to do everything. You know, on a square meter basis inside a building, light it, heat it, ventilate it, cool it down. Uh, but also all the other energy draws that you've got in that building. That budget is shrinking and shrinking fast. So, you know, that's putting pressures in other areas. I've, as we said earlier, I've been doing this a long time. You know. Is a 21 degree desirable set point something that we're going to have in the summer and moving forward, or are we going to let that? You can't drift have that in up? Germany now, can you? Yeah, you know, it's the European countries. Japan do other things around around that as well. So that's a, a that's a discussion to have to bring into your point, Mark, mm-hmm. which is that is a very much a people discussion as opposed to a technology discussion. Mm-hmm. The equipment can operate within that parameter quite easily as you know I did some modelling on that will the people want to operate in that <laughs> within that bubble we did some modelling on that <coughs> as, a, as an example so we took um, a building that would pass building regulations today with the amount of energy consumption that it has today and then we mapped on top of that what a typical air conditioning heating and cooling system would be and what proportion of the total amount of energy per square metre is actually being used by the heating and cooling system. We then overlaid that onto what a future building mm. should look like, where the overall energy consumption per square metre has dropped by something like 60%. Obviously, if you're still using the same amount of energy to heat and cool the building, that's a much bigger proportion of the total. So you'd end up, you know, using your analogy there with a the budget, you'd end up spending way too much of your yeah. budget to heat and cool the building. So I think there's a real conversation to have moving yeah. forward about comfort, as in you can't have an unlimited amount of comfort. You know, you can't have the lighting level that you want, the room temperature that you want, the humidity that you want, the parts per million of CO2 that you want, but also get to the energy use intensity per square meter that you want and get to the embodied carbon per square meter that you want. And I think that feeds directly into the the stranded asset discussion that we're having because when you plot that out, you know, you, you, you may go, actually, you see, that, that's a problem. That particular building or that floor on that building, let's divest ourselves of that as soon as we can because that's, that's not something we want to take on. Yeah, and different, different people or different buildings will have different priorities. Yeah. And, it, you know, you're not necessarily going to be able to achieve everything overnight. You might have to focus your efforts on yeah. one part of the building services to start with. Maybe you focus your efforts on the, the building fabric or you focus your efforts on... You know, on something else, and and work our way through, and I think this feeds all the way back round to where we started. Is we've got the destination, yeah. But trying to get from where we are to where we're going to go, it's a bit of a meandering path, mm-hmm. and it will look different for different people. It will look different for different buildings, and what is the right solution for one person or one building won't necessarily be mm-hmm. for another. Obviously, that's 
why Mitsubishi Electric created the sustainability and construction team to try and help lead those discussions early on so that we could um, you know, try and help a client pick the right path for them. Thanks uh, very much for your time today, gents. I think it's a nice place to, to wrap up. We're trying to simplify sustainability and we're using the Ask Me podcast as a medium to do so. So if you did enjoy today's Stranded Asset uh, piece, we've actually written a white paper on that, which the link will be in the bio below. Um, and for future podcasts, please like, share, subscribe and comment. Um, and we'll see you very soon. Thanks very much. Thank you.